Welcome to the Time Has Come podcast. My name is Graham Wardle, and today we're going to have some fun. So thank you so much for joining me. It has been said that knowledge is power and that knowledge applied is wisdom. Well, I sat down to talk with a gentleman who has shared quite a bit of his knowledge and wisdom with me. His name is Ben Perrin, and he has stepped off into the unknown. He lives almost entirely on a new form of money called Bitcoin. Ben is a passionate educator, and he calls himself a Bitcoin maximalist. With over 3 million views and 36,000 subscribers on his show, BTC Sessions, on YouTube, Ben loves to empower others in their financial well-being. So what is money, really? And how does it work? My parents always told me it didn't grow in trees, but yet our governments around the world are able to print more money at any time that they want. So what's that all about? And have you ever wondered why prices always go up on the things that you need most and you barely get any interest on saving your money in the bank nowadays? And how about when you go into the grocery store and the cereal box gets smaller and smaller, but yet you, you pay the same price for it? What's that about? Well, we dive into all these questions and more as we discuss why Bitcoin might just be the future of money. Now, I must also state that no opinion expressed by myself or Ben is to be considered financial advice. We're just having a fun conversation. So, the time has come for us all to welcome Ben Perrin. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Pretty good, man. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I have a lot of questions for you, but I want to start with the basics of what Bitcoin is, and then we can take a trip back in time and explore the, the history of money. But for now, what is Bitcoin and where did it come from? So, Bitcoin was more or less designed to be an alternative to regular I guess you could call them government-issued currencies like most of us have been used to for most of our lives. And it came about in the midst of the financial crisis and was launched in January of 2009. And it was very much a response to irresponsible central banks and the way that they were dealing with their currencies and printing a lot of them and resulting in what we know as inflation and what turns into more expensive day-to-day -day costs for all of us. And so the idea behind Bitcoin was let's build a currency that has a limited supply so that you don't experience inflation. And let's make it in a way that technologically cannot be shut down, kind of like the internet or like torrents for people that are familiar with torrents. So it's very decentralized and and it's uh, kind of across the globe and has no central point of failure. So yeah, a limited supply and hard to shut down. Those, those are kind of a couple of the basics. Awesome. And so I've also heard it's being called like the people's money because no, there's no person that owns Bitcoin in terms of like, there's no CEO of Bitcoin. Yeah, 100%. It is a network just like the internet. So you, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint who owns the internet because really nobody does. Everybody in a way partakes in the internet and you can use it, but no one person controls it. And if you want to blame the internet for something, you can't really <laughs> point fingers at anyone. So yeah, there's no central point, central figurehead or leader behind Bitcoin. Now, the reason I wanted to have you on was because I find this topic so interesting. And I know for a lot of people, finance, money can feel very overwhelming, you know, gives people a headache or 
or for some people it's it really becomes like an obsession and they can't think about anything else but you know money and such and for me i see it more as understanding proper nutrition if you if you do it can benefit your life and you can really uh, lead a better life and if you understand money and you understand how it works you can really be empowered and so let's let's rewind the clock and talk about the origins of money where did money come from and what are the principles of sound money yeah so i mean money kind of came to fruition from a, a need to be able to kind of measure human time and effort and a way of measuring i suppose debt previously when there was no money uh you would either have to enter into what's known as a barter transaction so maybe i have some eggs and you have you made a pair of shoes and we would have to figure out how many eggs represent one pair of shoes. Right. Uh, and that can be problematic if you, instead of having a pair of shoes, have a cow and I have a dozen eggs. It's kind of hard to cut up the cow and then save the rest for when you need, you know, eggs later, that meat is going to yeah. go bad. Furthermore, it kind of stops or prevents the specialization of labor. So it's very difficult to become a brain surgeon and barter with that skill. There's not going to be a lot of people that need brain surgery in order to give you eggs. Uh, and so <laughs> good point. Need, good point. Yeah. So what you need is you need a, a way of measuring how much effort and time and how much efficiency you had with your time in creating something or doing a task for somebody. And having a unit that represents that and knowing that it's redeemable for an equivalent value of goods and services later. So a lot of us nowadays work for hourly wages. And what you're really saying is my time and effort is worth a certain amount of this arbitrary currency that we're using. Mm -hmm. And I will work for that amount. And then I expect to be able to redeem that later for goods and services. There's been lots of forms of money. There's been things like seashells and beads and glass and mm -hmm. lots of different things like that. Then we got into precious metals, silver and gold, even copper in some instances. And then more recently, we had gold-backed currencies. So gold, the issue with it was that it was a little bit harder to divide and a little bit harder and heavier to store. And mm -hmm. so to solve some of those issues, people started putting it with banks and in vaults and those banks would issue paper notes saying so-and-so has a deposit of this much gold here and this paper note proves it. And people started trading the notes instead of going in and redeeming it for the gold and then handing over the gold. It was just easier to deal with the paper. The issue with that is you get into instances where people printed more paper than there was gold backing it. And then you would get bank runs, people wanting to redeem their gold. Well, that, that happened on a global scale when the US dollar became the world reserve currency, which was supposed to be backed by gold. But they the world quickly figured out that the US was creating more dollars than gold that they had. And in and around the late 60s, early 70s, some of those countries started asking for the gold that they had stored in the U.S. back 
And instead of the U.S. saying, sure, here's your gold back, they, they said, actually, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to temporarily suspend the convertibility of dollars to gold. So all those dollars we gave you, eventually, maybe you'll be able to get gold back for them. But just, just so there's not a panic, we're going to uh, go off that gold standard for a little bit. And we haven't returned to it. Was that Nixon that did that, that took uh, the U.S. off the gold standard? Yeah, that was Nixon in 1971. Um, and there's a really good website called, uh, it's WTF happened in 1971. And it doesn't say, it doesn't allude to any specific event uh, as the causation of any of these charts, but it just has charts of things that have happened since 1971. And it's awe-inspiring. Uh, inflation, costs of living, housing costs, just every everything has been insane since then and because it's been gradual enough people don't realize it but i think it's starting to speed up and people feel that in their day-to-day -day lives people feel that they they go to the grocery store and they're like god i spent 100 bucks and i got like two bags what's going on here and and you notice it and you you go through a drive through and you you pick up some quick food and you're like 15 bucks for a meal. I don't remember it being that expensive. Yeah. We had a conversation about this and, and for everybody listening, Ben and I have been chatting now for a few years. Uh, you've been educating mm -hmm. me about, uh, you know, money and, and Bitcoin and such. And one of our conversations we had, I can't remember the term you used, but it was about shrinking the size of the box. Yes. What was that called? So this is called uh shrinkflation. And so what it is, Next time you go to the grocery store, I want you to go and I want you to start actually looking at the way things are packaged. Pick up a jar of peanut butter and turn it over and look at the bottom and notice the divot that goes into the jar. And you, and you think, well, what's, what, what's the function of this? Well, the function is to be able to put less peanut butter in the jar and charge the same price. And one that's really bad for this is look at boxes of cereal. You pick them up and, and this one can be quite deceptive because the front of the box can remain the same and it looks the same, but the boxes are getting skinnier. They're putting less into mm -hmm. the box than you used to. There was a, a study they actually looked at, uh, I believe it was Snickers bars in the UK um, and the pricing for them along with the size of them. And I'm sure some people listening to this will recognize that you've probably noticed chocolate bars are getting smaller if you indulge from time to time. Well, they found in the UK that over the course of less than 10 years, the size of a Snicker bar shrunk by half and the price doubled. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's happening all over the place. You see the cute little Coke cans and you're like, oh, those are so cute. We'll just get the little ones because I, I, I don't want a whole Coke. Yeah, but you're paying the same price of what you used to pay for a 355 millimeter, milliliter can. Right. And, yeah. and so a, a lot of people tend to misplace the anger around that because it is done deceptively. And so the knee jerk reaction is to go, these, these companies are trying to screw me in some way, shape, or form. And in essence, yes, there is dishonesty happening there. But let's look at it from the perspective of anybody making any, any product. They know that some companies will employ these tactics because companies know that if they present it the same way, they've, they've got options, right? Because the, the dollars 
that they're using to buy the products to make the products that they're making. So to to get all of the resources and the workers and pay everybody, those dollars buy less. They got to pay workers more. Right. It's going to cost more for whatever goes into the product. And so they've they've got options. They can either sell the exact same product at the same size with the same amount of workers and charge more. And that would be perfectly honest of them to do because their dollars are, are not going as far. Mm-hmm. Or they could use worse products to make their own product. They, it could mm-hmm. be more cheaply made. They could use less workers or they could deceptively package it so it looks the same and the price is the same or only moderately higher and try to get that market share from somebody else who has left everything else the same but increased their prices. And, And if you're walking through the grocery store, you're probably not checking how many grams of cereal is in a box. You look down the line, you look at the the same looking size shape of box. And you go, well, this one's a couple bucks cheaper. So you pick that one up. And those little differences can make or break a business. And so businesses are literally just reacting to the inferior quality of our currency and acting as such so to stay in business. And this is what has happened throughout history. Wasn't it, you know, in the Roman Empire, didn't they start doing that with their silver coinage? They started putting in other metals that weren't as valuable and and sort of cutting them or or watering them down, so to speak. I don't know what the term would be, but they were trying to finance their wars for this. And so they had to create more currency. And so they would cheapen their money. Yeah, 100%. And and the interesting thing about it is that sounds so deceptive, it, and it is. They would clip their coins. So you'd, That's what it you'd, was. Yeah, clip them. Yeah, you'd get, you'd get a coin and you'd notice that there'd be little little uh, chunks cut off the edges and people would gradually clip them down and you'd, you'd get coins that were starting to get pretty uh, quite a bit of wear and tear and people would get take those little clippings and then melt them down and create new coins out of it eventually. And so... And like you said, put in other metals, so on and so forth. But the the thing with that was there there were limits to it. You couldn't like cut a coin in half and right. and or you know cut off a third of the coin and then go mint a whole bunch of other coins with that over time because people would wouldn't accept the old coin. But to that point, let's <laughs> to to that kind of like one third dilution of your currency of, of that yeah. kind of. Um, by comparison, when you're dealing with a fiat currency, as it's known, where it's not backed by really anything other than, you know, people will say what's backed by government, um, but it's not backed by gold. And fiat means by decree, the government basically means it's from the government, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So, you know, all, all world currencies now, US dollar, Canadian dollar, euro, British pounds, none of it is backed by any hard metals, gold, silver, anything like that. Nothing is backing it other than the government saying, we issue this currency and you can use it for taxes. Great, great use case. So (laughs) so, um, with that comes, it's way easier to debase it. It's way easier to print more of it, thus making each dollar or euro worth less. And when I, when I mentioned, oh yeah, you wouldn't accept a, a gold coin that's been cut a third of it has been cut off. That's effectively what has happened in a single year this year. The US has printed 
almost 30% of all existing US dollars in a single year this year. Mm, it's unbelievable. And that that will translate eventually to higher prices at, at the grocery store or for your everyday goods and services, correct? Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because it depends where that money flows. A lot of people get hung up on Okay, well, there's more dollars, and 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 maybe it will result in inflation. And in a lot of cases, it will in some way, shape, or form. But it depends where it goes. So, mm. in 2008, 2009, they printed hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. But where did they put it? The the governments, by and large, bailed out banks that had been making terrible business and and right. money decisions with other people's money but they said they deemed it uh, too big to fail so they're like what the hell we're going to print off hundreds of billions of dollars we're just going to give it to you guys and we trust you to do the right thing well what they had hoped would happen is those banks would then go lend it to people and 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 people everyday citizens would be better off for it and could run their businesses and and build um, what actually happened is the banks went and bought back their own shares of their own companies to kind of pump up the prices of their own companies and they also pumped them into stocks which resulted ah. in the longest bull run in the history of the stock market because there was all this funny money being printed and just pumping into stocks. So you didn't really see as much Main Street inflation, you and I, we still saw it quite a bit, but comparatively where you saw inflation was in the stock market, artificially mm. propped up prices of stocks. It's going insane and it continues to go insane because now this time's a little bit different, you know, because of everything going on in the world, lockdowns and everything. The government couldn't just say everybody shut down your businesses and you get nothing. They had to hand out some money to some people. But what a lot of people don't realize is proportionally a lot more money went to once again corporations, companies, whoever was closest to the money spigot got a huge portion of that. And so really in giving people dollars, they felt richer, but the prices of assets that could preserve your wealth went up. And so regular people are priced out. The prices of housing of, mm -hmm. of you know, and day-to-day -day goods now are all going up. And so while you got this one time, if you're in the US, one time, maybe two time coming down the pipeline uh, check, and in, the, in Canada, you got curb for a bit, your expenses are going up and you're not going to be able to break even as easily as you thought. And the repercussions of what's happening, I don't believe have even begun to hit. And it's, it's worrying. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, uh, you know, I thought a lot about before I started this podcast with you is how to explain this to people, because it's really, it's, it's a really big concept. And, and sometimes it can feel a little disempowering because, you know, people aren't in, in control of this, you know, how, how is, how, what are they supposed to do? And that's why I really wanted to do this podcast with you is to, to sort of build a foundation, an understanding of money, understand what's going on. And for me, draw the comparison to what's what happened to our food as well, because I see it very similar how we have devalued and eroded the soil and the, where we grow our food. And then therefore, the nutritional content of our food has been impacted and we can eat a whole bunch of food, but we can't feel satiated or we can't feel uh, nourished. I feel it's a very similar thing that's going on with the tool that we use called money, where we have allowed it to be taken away from the people and had been exploited 
by governments or people that want to finance their projects or political things, whatever it is, that they they devalue and they debase the currency. And for the short term, it may seem like it's good. Similar to if you want to grow a bunch of food really quickly, maybe there's some things that you can do with different treatments to the soil and such, but over time, you destroy it. You really make it difficult for actual long-term sustainability. And, and that's what I see going on in the monetary world, in the money world as well, is that we have not taken responsibility and understood what money is as a tool, why it is a store of value, how to protect that store of value. And that's why when I heard about Bitcoin and I started learning more about it, I was like, oh, this is very similar to the, you know, the original or one of the original forms of a store of value of like gold and silver. Bitcoin is something very unique in, in it's, it's never been seen before. It's a new technology. That's what I really wanted to share with people is like, this is something that's coming. I can feel it. You know, we've talked a lot about it. You know, we're crossing new thresholds in in the world in terms of the price of it. And I think it's important for people just to kind of get a taste of what it is and and there's going to be trade-offs. There's going to be it's not perfect, right? There are things that are still being worked out. It's 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 not owned by a company. It's it's there's just a collective of people that are working on it to make it better. And uh, it's a really exciting thing, but it it takes a lot uh, of time to kind of understand it. And so you've you've explained a little bit about Bitcoin being decentralized and it being a form of people's money. How do you how do you start people on the journey if they were to want to learn more about it? What's their first step? So I'd say for a first step, typically people need to see it and try it in action to kind of get that that initial wow factor of oh this this is actually a real thing and it works and so you know if i if i'm with somebody in person i'll usually say okay well what you're going to do is is you can download a wallet and i'll just i'll send you like a dollar and you can you know send it back to me and it would function the exact same as if we were on the other side of the planet and when people see that it, they kind of go, oh, okay, so this this is real, and then they they then ask, well, what can I use this for? Can I purchase something with it? Can I can I use it for something? And over time, Bitcoin has become increasingly useful, depending on what your unique use case is. For myself, as of this year, I. I would say 90 to 95% of my income and day-to-day expenses are earning and paying for things with Bitcoin. So you can live on it. There is infrastructure now currently deployed that, you know, even though there's kind of some stopgap measures in between that bridge the gaps between the we'll call it the legacy or traditional financial systems and this kind of new uh, I guess, monetary beacon that we're seeing come out of mm-hmm. Bitcoin, but it, it is 100% you can use it and live on it. And I've experimented with this since, well, I mean, 2014, and it has continued to get easier. Uh, you're starting to see a lot more of it. I mean, everybody after listening to this, you'll probably you may have glazed over and not noticed before, but you're going to start seeing this everywhere. 
you're going to start seeing it in the news. You're going to start seeing news articles and maybe something on TV and your favorite show. Somebody will mention it in passing. You're going to start seeing it all over the place. And it just, it's those touch points of being familiarized with it and getting curious and then starting to experiment and seeing it, you know, if it's something you're interested in. And hmm. right now it, it may not be for everybody, but over time, I think it will become infrastructure that everybody uses, even if they don't realize they're using it. Kind of like, you know, we don't need to understand how the internet works in behind the scenes with TCIP or anything like that. But that is something that's, you know, makes the internet work. We don't know how that works, but we can still type in a browser and go to a website. Yeah, exactly. And, and so again, a lot of people tend to have issues with, with trusting Bitcoin and there is a, an ethos in Bitcoin and it goes, don't trust verify. And, and so the reasoning behind that is, is Bitcoin was specifically built based on a distrust of the current monetary system. So here in Canada, for instance, we do not know, and it's impossible really to know how many Canadian dollars truly exist at any one time. We also don't know how many of those allegedly real Canadian dollars are counterfeit. You know, we, we can find out if we, if we check, but it's a little bit harder to verify how many are real and how many are not. Furthermore, we have no idea what the issuance of Canadian dollars is going to be. And, and you have no idea. You can't project that out. You're basing it on the whims of the Bank of Canada and what they decide to print. And not only that, but the people running the Bank of Canada are not elected. You have no way of voting for who is there or what their policies are. And mm. so Bitcoin was meant to be the opposite. It was meant to say, here are the clear set of rules that govern this network, and you can opt into that if you choose to use it, and nobody can change those rules. And furthermore, the, the, it's known as open source, open source code. So, yes, anybody, so open source code means that anybody who knows how to read computer code can go in and audit and see exactly what Bitcoin is doing under the hood and be able to audit it and make sure that it is doing what it is indeed promising it's doing. It's kind of like if you picked up a, a, a regular car and you dropped it into the middle of the 1600s. To them, it would seem like magic. However, anybody that wanted to, that was curious enough, could disassemble the car and gradually figure out how it was working. And mm. in the end, it wouldn't even matter because it still got them from point A to point B. <laughs> so right. it's it's the same idea with Bitcoin. Anybody can check that it's working how they think it's supposed to work and uh, verify it. What what I also love about that idea of open source and the way Bitcoin was the pioneer in this idea of blockchain and a currency that runs on a blockchain was what you you and I talked about one of our phone calls about what's called a node, mm -hmm. and we talked about it and what what is a node and all these different things and. I would love to dive into this a bit more because what really got me excited about the principles behind Bitcoin and, and running a node was the idea of personal responsibility and of being able to verify for myself that this is the rules that our Bitcoin is, is running and I have them running on my node and no one can change that unless I consent to that change. And, and I think it was during our conversation that I, I drew the metaphor or maybe you drew the metaphor of 
it would be like hanging the you know Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms on your wall. And if the government wanted to change that or take away some of your rights and freedoms, they wouldn't be able to do so unless you agreed to that. And running a node kind of gives you that power of saying, these are the rules of Bitcoin. I am running these rules and no one can change them unless I agree. Am I, am I quoting that right? Is, is, am I recalling our conversation correctly? Yeah, 100%. So, so for those unfamiliar with the concept of, of what a, a Bitcoin node is, effectively, it is a piece of software that you can run on your computer or on like a, a dedicated smaller machine in your house. I have one whizzing behind me right now on the shelf and it's always on. It's, it's basically a tiny computer that stores the entire history of every transaction that has ever happened on Bitcoin to make sure that they are all valid. And it stores the rule set that governs the entire network. Important things like, well, how many Bitcoin are there going to be and how are they going to be issued? So that is all kind of hard coded in there. And I can run this node, this tiny computer, this tiny piece of software, um, and I can connect any Bitcoin wallet that I have to it. And my Bitcoin wallets will know that I'm always running this software and this set of rules. And if somebody outside tries to go and change those rules, let's say somebody wanted to go and say, well, hey, I think that a maximum amount of Bitcoin is a bad idea. In fact, I think there should be unlimited Bitcoin. We should just print it all day long. Well, <laughs> I get to say no. And the rest of the network, every other person running a node around the globe is going to say no. And unless you get every single person to agree to that change, which why would anybody ever agree to that? Uh, it, it's not going to happen. It'll never happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and beyond that, it's kind of, it's almost like it, so somebody could effectively say, Hey, I want to, I want to take Bitcoin and I want to change it a little bit. I want to change one of those rules. They would, they would have to get the, they'd have to steal the network effects of Bitcoin. So just to illustrate how difficult this is, you would have to get everybody to switch over to your network and, and value your coin more. It's, it's like, if you said, Hey world, I created internet 2.0 and my internet is a totally different network. You can't reach it from the regular internet. Nobody can connect to each other from the internet you currently run to my new internet, but it's better. I made a few tweaks. I think it's slightly better. Come on over. Try getting the world to switch internets. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Another, uh, I guess, example would be Imagine if you voted for a certain political party and they lost and you still got to go by the rules of that political party, because that's effectively what I'm doing. Regardless of what anybody does outside of my node, I get to still run that software and go by those rules. And that to me is like ultimate um, personal responsibility and empowerment, because it, it would be the equivalent in, in my mind of like, you know, having my house run off solar power and, you know, being able to grow my own food. If I'm able to run the rules of the, the form of the tool of money that I use, Bitcoin, and I'm able to verify these are the rules I'm playing by and no one can change them, it, it, to me, that means you know, personal empowerment and responsibility and a freedom that that's what really drew me to this idea of like, oh, 
I don't have to worry about a government saying, well, we want to print a bunch of money. We want to change the, the number of Bitcoin because we want to finance a new war or we want to do this. We want to bail out the banks. They can't do that on Bitcoin. You would literally have to agree and either send them the money <laughs> or you'd have to agree and change your node and, and change the software. So it is a real um, power to the people idea that is really, it, it's exciting. And what I wanted to ask you was, there are so many uh, developments with Bitcoin in terms of the, the programmable money, the idea that you can put software on top of money. Do you see uh, a future where the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is put on a blockchain or, or on top of Bitcoin in some way? Is that even possible? Could you do something like that so a government couldn't infringe upon the individual's rights? So you can you can tag certain things onto the Bitcoin blockchain. You can you can track and do certain things. One one thing I always am cautious about is saying that blockchains will solve everything. And so the the reason I say that is because there's been a lot of blockchain, not Bitcoin, and and you'll get a lot of funny enough banks that say, hey, we're going to run a blockchain, but we're it's not going to be open and borderless and decentralized and censorship resistant. We're going to run it. And for those of you unsure what a blockchain is, I guess I don't want to get ahead of myself, but blockchain is the technology underpinning Bitcoin. And it is the immutable ledger that tracks all transactions that have ever happened. And it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reverse transactions within 10 minutes. And once you start going further and further back, you know, an hour back, it's it would just be so expensive and impractical to change that information that why even try? So some people have looked at use cases for a blockchain, but it's it's always important to think, do you want that information unchangeable and forever? And so in in certain instances, perhaps, perhaps tag certain assets or property rights onto, you know, on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, so you, you own the deed to your home or, or you own a certain amount of stock, but it's important not to try to reference too many real world items on a blockchain. And the reason I say that is the information on the blockchain is only as good as the person who input it. So, so Bitcoin works because uh, it's, it's purely digital. And so if you see that you have Bitcoin in your wallet and you're running a node, well, you, you know that the Bitcoin is there because it's digital. There's, there's nothing real world to represent it. But if something on the blockchain says that you own a bar of gold, so a lot of people float the idea of, well, we'll have a, a gold backed cryptocurrency. But that's, a, in my opinion, a terrible idea in that you get into the same issue that happened with the gold standard with Nixon is sure you see it on the blockchain, but did you actually audit yourself? Did you go and look at that bar of gold? And can you be sure that they haven't issued tokens to multiple people <laughs> for the same bar of gold? Right. So we got to be careful when we get into the idea of let's put everything on the blockchain because unless it's purely digital, it, it can be problematic. And even still, even if it is purely digital, depending on the strength of the network and how many people are protecting the network and how large it is and how difficult it is to reverse things, you could find that even your digital assets disappear if you're on an inferior network. 
Interesting. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that lots of excitement around Bitcoin and blockchain. And wasn't there an iced tea company that added blockchain to their name just because? I feel like we're about to see a whole bunch more of that in this next year. You know, we've just kind of blasted through previous all-time highs where things are heating up. It looks like it's another bull market. And I'm starting to see a little bit of the crazy come out of the woodwork. And I'm mm. I'm I'm getting inklings that there's going to be some irrationality abounding. So again, anybody listening, I think that it's in your best interest to to be critical and to be uh, you know, cynical of everything that you hear including anything coming out of my mouth. As right. the mantra goes, don't trust, verify. Yeah. Amen. So Ben, talk to me a little bit about what it's like living off Bitcoin. You you said that you've you're about 90% now fully getting paid in Bitcoin, living off Bitcoin. What is that like for you to go to the grocery store? Do you take out your phone and pay with Bitcoin or or how, how does your day-to-day -day life work or how is it different now that you're almost entirely living on Bitcoin? You know, there's there's a few adjustments to make. So obviously there, you, you can't go to, you know, Safeway or Sobeys or whatever and and pull out your Bitcoin wallet and pay directly. But there are methods in which you can fill that gap. So uh, what's what's a typical kind of month look like for me? So, you know, I, I run my show. I get paid through, you know, I have sponsors of the show and so on and so forth. They pay me directly in Bitcoin. That Bitcoin comes in. I save as much as possible. And I'll, I'll touch on that as in, in a moment. But I, I put stuff into savings and then I go ahead and I start looking at, okay, well, what, what are my expenses this month? And so I look and any bills, credit card bills, phone bills, utilities, anything like that, I can pay directly online with Bitcoin. And I, I do that currently with a website called Bull Bitcoin, which you set up your bills on there. You have, you log into your account, you set up whatever bills you want. And then at the time when it comes to pay the bill, you say, okay, I want to, I want to send a hundred dollars to Telus for my phone bill. It, it says, okay, well, that's going to be this much Bitcoin. I pull out my phone, I scan a QR code and hit send, and that bill is paid within a day. So they're doing the heavy lifting on the other side. They accept the Bitcoin, they pay the Canadian dollars for the Telus bill, and I'm all happy and hunky dory. So those are a lot of my basic bills. Now, when it comes to, okay, I got to get groceries. What am I going to do? Well, there's a whole bunch of different websites where you can use Bitcoin to purchase regular gift cards for whatever merchants you may want. So gas, groceries, those are kind of the main ones that I need to do. And a lot of them actually, like there's one that I use called BitRefill, and it actually pays me back rewards in Bitcoin. So I'm getting oh. to save some of my own Bitcoin in doing so. I'm trying to think some of the other, I mean, there's, yeah, there's my mortgage. And, and then on top of that, I guess if I need to get money, I do have a bank account. I keep far less dollars in it than I ever did before. But if I need money in my bank account, I can still use bull Bitcoin to get money in my bank account within a day. And then there's tons of online exchanges that you can utilize if you need to swap in and out of Canadian dollars. But one thing that I've really noticed and this, the main reason I didn't start living on Bitcoin sooner is I was worried it would bring out my previous bad habits. And, and to clarify, I used to be terrible with money. I would spend basically whatever I have. I would rack up debt. 
I was just all around irresponsible and I never really built those skills in and around money until I found Bitcoin and I actually started saving, even though it, it kind of started in a speculative fashion for me. So I was, you know, putting a little bit of money in saying, oh, this might go up. But Bitcoin, because it's as you dive into the philosophy behind it, you start to think in terms of of being a much more low time preference individual. And low time preference means you're not thinking for the now, you're thinking into the future. And you start to plan and be a little bit more careful with what you do with your money. And and this tends to manifest because you actually value your money more. If I have dollars, I'm thinking, well, you know, even even subconsciously, even if you're not thinking of it at the forefront of your mind that it's going to lose value, you know that things are getting more expensive. And and so you, you have a tendency to spend more or use debt. And it all kind of fuels this culture of of not valuing your money. You would never mm. save money and put it under a mattress with dollars. But with Bitcoin, that kind of shifted. And I was worried that I would normalize spending Bitcoin and I would go back to my old ways. But the inverse has happened. So as I started living on Bitcoin, I recognized the value of the currency I was dealing with, and I was much more likely to save than spend. And so I would save as much as possible, and then I would just cover my expenses. And, you know, I'd still treat myself here and there, but I was much more conscious of what I was doing with my money and how much purchasing power I could be throwing away on meaningless things if I wasn't careful. So it really kind of shifted my whole mindset around how I dealt with money and finances. Amazing. I love that. I think that is a, a lost principle of saving. Um, I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but when the Federal Reserve was created, I think it was 1913 or 17, mm-hmm. and then the purchasing power of the dollar till now is, is dropped, I think over 90% or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's insane. The amount it's high 90 something percent. Yeah. <laughs> so it just it erodes. Now I asked you a bit about what it's like to live off Bitcoin and, and listening to you, I go, you know, this sounds all exciting and stuff to me, but I, I know for a lot of people, it sounds like a lot of work. You know, you're visiting websites, you're doing these things. It sounds like a lot of runaround, but I'm assuming that you would say that the trade-off is that you have a form of money that is going to retain its store of value for you. And so it's worth it. Would, yeah, would, you, would yeah. you agree? I, I would agree. I would also say that the additional hoops that I have to jump through help rein in my spending. That extra, again, it forces me to be more conscious of what I'm doing. Do I really want to take this money and convert it and get it into my bank account right now? I don't know. I think I'd rather I'd rather hold on to it and save it. <laughs> hold on. To um, it, yeah. I'm I'm not going to lie. It's it's definitely we live in a world that is dominated by the current traditional financial systems, and your debit cards are incredibly easy to use. And honestly, if you're purchasing Bitcoin right now, but you're still getting paid in dollars, I would say it's much more prudent to be spending your dollars and saving your Bitcoin than the inverse. The reason I'm spending Bitcoin is because I've completely moved off of a dollar standard into a Bitcoin standard. And so that is my currency. It shapes the way that I behave and I'm okay with that. But for those of you that are earning dollars 
other than the novelty of doing a Bitcoin transaction, it, again, it would be much more prudent to dump the less sound money, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, well, this is something that I know I remember learning about in history as well, where when the cheaper forms of money would enter into circulation, I, th I think this is when in like the Roman times when they would introduce these, you know, the clipping, clipping coins or the cheaper metals that were melted into the coins, people would retain the fully silver coins, and then they would quickly spend the cheaper coins that had been cut or diluted because they wanted to get rid of them and they wanted to hold on to the valuable money. Yeah. And it's similar and to Bitcoin, right? It's similar to what you're, you're experiencing where you're holding on to the form of money that is retaining its value and going up in value and spending the dollars as quickly as you can. Yeah. And, and you would see this again in, in earlier times when you would have gold coins and silver coins and you would have nations that neighbor each other and one would be on a gold standard and one would be on a silver standard. Now, the thing about silver is that it's much easier to mine and mint than gold. And so what would happen is if you have a money that's easier to produce more of it will be produced. And so what would end up happening when you'd have competing nations with currencies that were based off of different monetary metals, the sounder monetary metal, the one that was more difficult to produce would inevitably be worth much more. And so you'd see the value of silver drop in comparison to gold as they were used as actual currencies. Now, the issue that arose is again, over time, gold was a little bit harder to divide as it rose in value over time. So that you needed, in some instances, the silver would be used as the lower denominations or copper or, or whatever. You'd have different metals for different denominations. But since we actually moved off of a gold standard and the primary use case for gold and silver as money became more of a just store of wealth, the price of silver in comparison to gold has dropped substantially. It still has its spikes and drops, but mm -hmm. over time, the harder money wins out, the one more difficult to produce. And so you see it reflected in the price of gold versus silver over time as people flock to the soundest money. And now I think we're starting to see the first inklings of people flocking to a sounder money than gold. Bitcoin is the first truly scarce money the planet has ever seen. And what, what I mean by that is, yes, in a sense, the gold on earth is in limited supply, but it differs a little bit here in comparison to Bitcoin because gold can be mined and we don't know how much gold is on earth, but I would venture to say we haven't even begun to really tap our resources when it comes to gold. And the thing is, when the price of gold goes up, that means it's now economical. It now makes economic sense for companies to employ more infrastructure to dig deeper and search further for oh, gold. For more gold. <laughs> yeah. And so what results is you get an influx of new gold onto the market, even though it's it's limited, it's but you still have that influx of new gold. And so when there's new gold, there's more supply. And if that exhausts how many people want to buy out there, if, if people buy it up and buy it up and then there's less and less buyers willing to buy, well, then that kind of dampens the price increase and kind of normalizes. With Bitcoin, this does not exist. 
no matter how many people want to purchase it, no matter how many people are trying to mine it, which is a, a technical thing I won't dive into right now, no more Bitcoin gets created. There's, there's a set number of Bitcoin. They're slowly being issued over time and you cannot go outside of that schedule. So we see this translated into major spikes and major dips that happen over the course of time in kind of it, it, it mirrors the the schedule that Bitcoin is issued over. And we can dive into that later if we want. But effectively, what you'll get is as the supply, uh, the issuance of new coins are, is kind of tightened, less and less are coming onto the market. And because the demand so far has remained relatively stable or increased, then you get a, a spike in price. And with a spike in price, you see more, well, podcasts like this, or you see news coverage, or you see different things and, and you hear about it and you go, well, maybe I'll, I'll take a look. And then some people maybe purchase more and more people come in and more people get interested. And this snowball effect starts happening and people are buying up Bitcoin and, and you get to into these hype cycles where it just gets so insane mm -hmm. and everybody and their grandmother is trying to buy some <laughs> Bitcoin. The thing is, the supply still does not increase the speed of issuance. And so you get to these massive, massive manias and these blow off tops. And then the opposite of true is true on the way down. So when it's coming back down, even though historically after any of these big bubbles, it hasn't come down to the, you know, the even close to the previous all time high, it'll still have a drop typically afterwards. And there's no, just because there's no demand doesn't mean that there is less issuance coming onto the market. The same number of Bitcoin is still being created on that schedule and is still being issued. And if there's no buyers, then people have to sell at cheaper prices. So you just see these these kind of extremes happen over these, these four-year cycles. And every four years, the number of Bitcoin being created gets cut in half. And that tends to be, in my opinion, the driver of these crazy cycles. Every four mm -hmm. years, less Bitcoin being created. I love learning about this stuff. And I know for people that are, are just starting to learn about Bitcoin right now, this may sound a little overwhelming. Like, what do you mean it's cut in half and every four years and the price and ups and downs? But what I think is really important to convey is that money as a tool is a measurement of your economic output, you know, the time and effort that you put in. And it's a way of storing that value. And Bitcoin, because you can't change the number, it's, it's been set in the code, in the rules, that there's only ever going to be this many Bitcoin. That ruler that you measure your effort and your time with to get you know, your economic output, what you do for your job and your work, it cannot change. Whereas with a fiat currency, a paper money, a government can come in and print more of that money and they can stretch that ruler. And the people that get to use that new stretched ruler first, they get all the benefit. Mm -hmm. But the people on, you know, at the end of the line, the the everyday person working their, you know, running their hair salon or their restaurant, they don't get that first use and they have to work harder. And over time, they're working harder and harder for less and less. And they don't understand why. And it's that ruler, that measurement tool that we have called money that is changing without your consent. And with Bitcoin, you have that ultimate power to say, no, this is the ruler. This is how many Bitcoin there will ever be. And no one can change that unless I agree. And so over time, 
the efforts that you put into and get in, in exchange for a Bitcoin or, or a portion of a Bitcoin, that stays relatively the same over a long period of time. There is still that sort of, like we were just mentioning, uh, ups and downs of, of, I think, what's called a price discovery as people are trying to understand what a Bitcoin is worth. So for a lot of people, they go, oh, Bitcoin, you know, it, it crashed. It's, it's, it's not worth anything anymore. And that's what happened to me when I bought my first Bitcoin and that was 2013. It was, it, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had heard about it. It was a, just like, you know, a news article. I read it in the newspaper. I was like, oh, what's this, this Bitcoin thing? It's 2013. And I was in Calgary working on uh, whatever season of Heartland that was. And um, I walked down to this little store and I, I walked in with a, $1,000 in cash. One Bitcoin was worth a thousand bucks. And I thought, well, I can't just I have to buy a whole one. I, I didn't know you could buy a portion of a Bitcoin. So I walk in there with a thousand dollars and I, and I buy one. And the guy's like, he takes my phone and he, he does something to it and he hands it back to me. He says, there you go. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like what happened? Like, where's my little coin? Like, what do I get? He's like, it's, it's on your phone. And I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what was going on. And, uh, you know, that was at the very early stages. And I learned my lesson because I forgot my password. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't write it down, and I didn't understand the principles of Bitcoin of ultimate responsibility. Of you're taking that full ownership of your financial well-being, and I just thought, oh, I'd be able to, you know, email somebody and get my password back. Well, that's not how it works uh, because that would be a middleman. That would be a third trusted party. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I lost it. Well, whatever. It was a fun thing, and it wasn't until 20, 2017. Uh, a few years later that the price started going up again. And I went, oh, I got a Bitcoin somewhere. And, <laughs> and it was a costly lesson. Yeah. Well, let's 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 just for a second examine the time frame you just talked about. You you got interested in 2013, which was one year after the the issuance of new coins was cut in half. Uh, so there's less coins coming onto the market. And about a year later, the supply and demand seemed to do its thing. There was less supply and equal or greater demand and the price spiked. Well, it, it went through its big mania and then it came back down over the next few years. Well, how many years later was it that you saw it go above its previous all-time high? Four years, which right. conveniently is uh, 2017 was about a year after the issuance of new coins was once again cut in half. And what happened this year? Once again, the issuance of new coins was cut in half, and now we're blasting through new all-time highs again. And so when you're looking at this, you should be, in my opinion, looking at this via at least a four-year time horizon, if not longer, because mm. the the name of the game here, again, is preserving long-term wealth. In fact, even generational wealth, I would argue. Something to leave to your kids and your grandkids. There's a possibility that this is, you're witnessing the monetization of a new asset. You're witnessing the changing of a worldwide monetary system. And it, it this will be, if it succeeds, as profound, if not more profound on the trajectory of mankind than the internet was. And I know some people are shaking their heads saying that sounds crazy. It is crazy, but it just might work. 
Well, thank you so much, Ben, for diving into uh, Bitcoin with me and, and sharing a bit about how it works and such. And there's there's so much more, everyone. Like, <laughs> I, I've been <laughs> I've been trying to learn about this for a few years now, and I'm still learning stuff. And it's um it's very interesting. And the good news is that over time, there are lots of very creative people that are coming forward. And and like Ben, you all the videos that you create and help educate people and and walk them through the steps, which is great. I I watch your videos all the time because I learned so much. And it's it's great that there's a community of people that are passionate about this technology because it is for the people. And they share that information and they help educate people. And over time, the, the systems and, and the ways in which you can use Bitcoin have improved. And that's it may not be for someone today, but you know, in the future, the systems are improving making it easier to use and educating people, which is which is really great. So I will leave links below this podcast in the show notes and then below the YouTube video for people to find more information about Ben and about how to get started. If someone is interested in watching more videos or, or just you know playing around, those links will be below. One of my traditions that I ask people is a fun question. It's uh, It's called my magic painting question. And I find it's really interesting to ask people just to get an insight into their life and to what they what they enjoy feeling most. And so the question that I ask all my guests goes like this. If you were to have a magic painting on your wall that whenever you looked at it, you could feel any feeling you wanted to feel to any degree that you wanted to feel it, what feeling would you choose? And what would you want your painting to be about? Would it be abstract? Would, what kind of colors would it have? Describe that painting as well. So I've been married to my wife now since 2016, but about two years into the relationship, we went on our first backpacking trip together to Europe. And I, th I think the feeling that I love the most that was probably one of the best feelings I've ever had is I, I worked my ass off for like a solid year uh, trying to save for this big trip. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I, I was literally working 16 hour days consistently. I would maybe get a day off once every two weeks for probably 10 months or so. And I worked all the way up until I believe 11 PM the night before I was going to fly out in the morning. And the, the feeling of walking out that door for the last time, getting in my car and driving home, knowing that for the next three months, I would have zero responsibility. I would be rediscovering Europe and exploring the Mediterranean sunny areas that I was about to enjoy. That feeling and I and I've got, we've gone on trips since I've backpacked before that and that feeling of just release of mm. responsibility and excitement of exploration was one that I I consistently always uh, embrace and and strive for to experience again and so that would be my feeling and I think my painting my painting would probably be. Uh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be like abstract or anything. It would probably be uh, some type of a, a landscape picture, perhaps of of Rome or somewhere in Italy. I have a soft spot for Italy, so I, I'm imagining somewhere, probably in Rome, that I would have my painting of. So cool, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. I 
I always love hearing people's answers to this question. It's always something unique. It's always surprising. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening, I will leave all of Ben's social media handles and YouTube channel below so everyone can check out more of his work. And Ben, is there anything coming up that you have that you want to share with people, a new project or something that you want to share? You know what I'll, what I'll leave with is, again, people that are, are just getting started, if you just need those step-by-step hand-holding tutorials of what to do, I literally just have a, a blog piece, which is on the front page of my website that you can go to. And all of the beginning steps from how do I get my first tiny little bit of Bitcoin to what is a wallet and how do I secure it? All of that is there. So just btcsessions.ca. And then I'm sure uh, you'll have some other fun links down below, but that that's it. Awesome. And also just, just to throw in here, you also offer personal one-on-one coaching like I've been doing with you. So if somebody wants to talk to you and say, Hey, I have questions I want them to answer right away. I believe you still do that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I try to provide as much for free as possible, all in the form of video tutorials. But if you start going through those and you're like, listen, I just, I need somebody to really hold my hand and, and reassure me that I'm doing things right. (laughs) I think that's everybody from time to time, but, but yeah, if, if you get to that point and you're like, I'm, I get it but I'm not comfortable. I would rather have somebody right in front of me saying, this is right. Oh, careful there. I can do that too. So that's all on my website. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Well, did you guys have some fun? Did you learn something? I know every time I talk to Ben, I learn something new and it's pretty interesting. He's done a lot of work, a lot of research, and I'm really grateful that he came on the show and shared with us just a, a little sliver of, of all the wealth of information that he, uh, he has and that he's 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 constantly updating <laughs> there's so much to learn with this topic so i hope this was informative for you i hope you got some sort of new perspective about money and the tool of money i really wanted to to share this episode with you guys because i think it's important and i also think that it's often uh, categorized as a topic that is either taboo or that it is it's just too greedy it's just too all about money And I really wanted to create an episode about the tool of money, understanding it as a tool and taking a new approach to it, a new perspective so that people could, you know, empower themselves and bite off what they could chew and understand and then on their own time learn more. So I have uh, added some links below this video and in the show notes of the podcast episode. If you guys want to check out more information, some of my favorite videos and documentaries about money and learning about it, there's a lot to learn. And, um, it's always expanding and I, and I always love to learn new things. So I hope uh, that's helpful for you if you choose to check it out. I want to give a big thank you to Eskimotion for his song in dreams. It is in the intro of my podcast episodes. I'm so grateful to him for the use of his music. I love it. It sets the tone and I love getting into that pocket and just bringing you guys on a journey on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. I love this platform. I love being able to connect with you all. And I want to wish you, uh, from the bottom of my heart, strength and vision. Uh, vision is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. That with all the uncertainty in the world right now and all the things that are up in the air, that it's important for us to have a clear vision of the world that we want to create. There is this uh, phrase called uh, a new normal that uh, the media has been sort of parroting over and over and over again. There's going to be a new normal. 
And uh, I'm not interested in anyone else telling me what my new normal is. I'm interested in creating it. And for me, my new normal <laughs> is one that is more passionate, more loving, uh, more caring, more courageous, more connected. And I, I want to invite all of you to create your new normal, not let someone else tell you what it's going to be. I think that we are creators. We are put here on this earth to create, to explore, to imagine, and to bring our dreams into our reality. So I think that's up to us. And if we don't do it, someone is going to do it for us. So I want to invite you to create your new reality, to create your new normal in a way that comes from your heart, that inspires you and lifts you up. So that's what I wish you guys. I wish you courage. I wish you vision and lots of love. From my heart to yours, guys, all the best. I'll see you next time.